Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> hey, you know, your grading is done. Your classes are over. That should be a little uh, less tense. It is. I feel like I feel like the genie at the end of Aladdin. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous because I get paid to do this. It's my job and I actually love it. But man, I hate grading papers so much. And I had 27 essays to read. <laughs> but they're done. <laughs> All right. So did you go, uh, I mean, now that the, the building on campus is closed and you can't go in, where did you, you know, where did you find enough stairs to throw the papers off from and see what ledge they land on for the grade assignment? Well, there were only A's and B's. I only had one stair. <laughs> oh, your students should like that. I probably would have gone for the B's and C's approach, but. Ooh, look at you. I mean, it's a non-majors class. I had one person with like a 99.97, so. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it was a geology major that took this class. So. Oh, that's not even fair. I know. It's really great when that happens. I think it's really funny. And I was like, <laughs> ah, 0.03% wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a riot. I'm super excited. The rest of my July is, since we've canceled all our vacations, is I'm going to try my hand at upholstering some dining room chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finishes Arduino class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've been uh, you've been in the Arduino class, as have a couple of our former guests, mm -hmm. and we're actually in the final week of that class right now. Oh man, I can't tell you how many angry texts I've gotten from Stacy asking how to do something or if I'm there yet. <laughs> and then the one today, she was real mad because she was watching the one where you hooked up the temperature sensor, and your temperature sensor said like seventy something, and she was real angry because hers it was like eighty five where she was at. She was hot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that well, the question a, is, where are you at in the class? Uh, you know, the first lesson. <laughs> okay. But I've got all month ahead of me. I'm so excited. So you know, and we're we're actually going to run. Uh, so we have listeners and guests of the podcast actually in the class, and I think we're actually going to run probably the basics class like every other month. Oh, nice. And then I'm thinking I'm going to develop an intermediate class. Um, well, I know two people who would sign up for that. Um, I've been telling a lot of people about it, and I, there's, I think there's a lot of just personal interest on this. So um, I think that's a great idea. I will yeah, say, like, the board has gotten closer and closer to my main workspace as I graded <laughs> more and more. So <laughs> it's literally on the table next to my computer now. <laughs> I think in the intermediate one, we'll do some more like advanced sensors and maybe actually, actually have you hook some stuff up. Uh, scary. <laughs> as compared to this one where everything's on the board and you're focusing on the basics of programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I gotcha. I can't wait to talk about it. I figured that will be um, one of our summer shorts coming up is my experience with it and your experience making it. So I'm very excited. Yes, because let me tell you, it was very difficult to think of how do I explain the difference between a for loop and a while loop when it's something that I've been doing since 2007. Yeah, man. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is like, that's the pro of having a brand new teachers because they're not far removed from you. But then the con is once you break something, they don't know how to fix it because they don't have the experience. <laughs> right. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's a tricky line to walk for sure. Well, so, you know, speaking of this technology thing, I was shocked when you said that you <laughs> wanted to talk to me about an app. It's because the Arduinos made it closer to my workspace. It's in my mind more. 
Um, so I want to, I think we talked about this years ago, like the different, like how, like why would you make an app or a web app? Cause some things are web apps. Some things are apps for the phone. I don't know how this works, <laughs> but more and more people keep asking me to either spearhead, which is ridiculous. Have you listened to the podcast that I'm on about <laughs> <laughs> me not knowing how to do this? Um, <laughs> a rock ID app. And I will tell you, I have a bird ID app, the Merlin app from Cornell Ornithology, and I have this PlantNet app, which is the most useful and amazing app I've ever used. I think a Rock ID app is a bad idea. I will go one more and tell you that with existing technology, it is impossible. Great. Thank you. So, Fun Paper Friday? <laughs> fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Moving on. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, like, my thought is, like, how, I mean, and we've had app developers on here before, um, you know, there's the Rocked app um, through Wisconsin, and then we've had the Flyover Country app, but that's different. So, those apps take pre-existing geologic maps and just say, oh, here you are on this geologic map, which I think is great, and I don't know why you would need anything else, but what people want is to hold up there, because this is inevitably what happens when you have a public event that says, bring me a rock. <laughs> they bring in their penny-sized piece of something, right? Right. And they're like, what's this? <laughs> and people want to do that with an app. And it's not going to happen, right? No. I mean, so what's the... So I, I, I have a lot of reasons why, which are primarily public safety reasons, really, why I don't think it should happen. But I wanted to talk to you about technologically why it can't happen. Well, I want to hear about your public safety reasons. So well, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the easy part, which is like people have to make decisions. Well, they make dumb decisions, but people have to make decisions based on, and usually it's engineers, <laughs> based on rocks and it seems like it's a bad idea to have someone that is so uninformed to say like I need an app to identify this rock for me and then make a decision based on that so it's like, like people that make public <laughs> safety decisions because they have a radar app <sighs> I mean I'm one of those people but I also have a degree so I guess that's okay Yes. Yes, exactly. That's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe a radar app is easier to use, though. Like, are the colors coming towards me? That's bad. <laughs> Fair. Now, if you're talking about, well, looking at differential reflectivity at the uh, second tilt. Okay. No. <laughs> yes. Correct. Yeah, probably not. You should not, you should not have any, you should not have any control over what, what volumes you're looking at. <laughs> 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 on said radar app that is 100 percent true <laughs> if you're looking at vil and trying to make it oh yeah okay um <laughs> i digress because i've had this conversation as well i just it seems like a bad idea you know where it's like oh this says this is granite this app does so we're totally safe to build this thing people are going to walk around in and live on or whatever and then it's not granite it's this ridiculously unconsolidated sandstone that just happened to have colors like a granite and so now your building collapses <laughs> that i think is a little less likely to happen because there are so many 
you know, compaction tests and engineering approvals that go into buildings. Now, that part, yeah, that's probably true. It'd probably be more like, I don't know, maybe drilling wells or something like that. But there's been some really crappy uh, building practices. And I can just imagine this not making that any better, if that makes any sense. For sure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that people are going to say, well, you can do it with birds, you can do it with leaves, or you can do it with... And you can do all of that. But what instrument is your phone using to detect things with those apps? Cameras. Cameras. Mm-hmm. So what do cameras fundamentally sense? Light. Right, and from that we can derive a color. Mm-hmm. Oh, you were going that far. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and color is the least indicative property of a rock or mineral. <laughs> I mean, we say that, but that's kind of a lie. But yes, you're correct. And I don't know that I would even say that's kind of a lie. Well, I mean, if you're trying to tell the difference between hematite and limonite, you can 100% use color. <laughs> Make me an app that will pass Dr. David London's green mineral quiz. <laughs> and I'm, the, I'll be interested. Or the black one, or the white one, or the clear one. <laughs> right. <laughs> My PTSD is coming back. Um, 100%. That is 100% correct. So it needs to be... This is why... Yes. Okay. So... There's that. There's mm-hmm. also then you've got, those are minerals. Then you've got rocks, which are made up of minerals. Yeah. And those are even more complicated structures. There's so much nuance. What's the, what's the grain size of this sandstone? What's the sorting of this sandstone? And you, you talked about people bringing you a penny-sized sample of rock and saying, tell me everything about this. <laughs> yeah. And you can't do that. Because as a geologist, what do you do when you're determining what kind of rock you're looking at? You're looking at it in the context of everything that's around you. Yes, uh-huh, because that's the first thing someone asks is, or a geologist that's been asked that is, where did you get this? Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, okay, I, I am in Mississippian-era rocks. Right. And below me, I had this big carbonate stack. So what makes sense to be here? What could physically be possible to be here? And if you tell me granite, you're going to fail this course. <laughs> yes. You can't get that in an app. And I know that there's a lot of, well, you know, AI is going to help. And AI is an amazing tool. Neural networks and deep learning are amazing tools. They do not solve everything. It's just like every other signal processing or statistical method that's been out there. It's as smart as the person behind it. Okay. Well, this is, this is what I wanted to hear from you because, yes, that's what, when I'm like, no, there's, this is impossible because of the, there's too many nuances in a rock to do this. And then they say, well, AI can do it. Yeah, that's what people who haven't played with AI much say. Right. Yeah, but a lot of people say it. It's getting real annoying. <laughs> It's true, and I mean, AI does do some incredible things. I will give it that, and I've seen some really cool examples, but then you go look at some of the, you know, like AI weirdness, uh, okay. the, the blog from uh, the author of the book, uh, You Are a Thing and I Love You. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, it's all about neural networks and AI, and some of the experiments that she runs and the results that she gets out of the neural network, like, wow, this does really only work for certain problems. Oh, see, this is what's terrifying and why and, we're all going to die at the hands of robots. 
Well, and, you know, you think about a really advanced neural network. I believe Alicia White was saying that, you know, you're looking at roughly the same number of neurons as a jellyfish. Hmm. Okay. So like, if you could teach a jellyfish to tell the difference between different types of granite, okay. I can't teach a college senior to tell the difference between different exactly. Types of it's a it's a skilled thing. It's not we're we're not looking at a time series of data and trying to predict when the next truck's coming in and what's going to be on it. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at handwritten numerals or pictures and trying to identify things that are in them. We're trying to look at a picture, and from only a picture, gain what takes an experienced geologist all of their senses. And oftentimes fail at when you have that tiny of a sample, really. And especially when it's like, I don't know, I found it in my yard. I think somebody brought it there. Well, then, man, this could be anything. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Telling the difference between a meteorite is and a rock that looks like a meteorite is ridiculously difficult, even for geologists. And as somebody who's, you know, worked professionally as a programmer, I'll tell you that a programmer, you're going to say, okay, well, we've got, okay, let's say they talk to a geophysicist about this app. <laughs> and the geophysicist is going to say, okay, there are three types of rock in the world, sandstone, shale, and granite. <laughs> because that's what we know about, and that's what we can draw. Uh, no. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> okay. So let's take our three types of rock that are in the world, our sandstone, our shale, and our granite. And they're going to show a piece of each of these to the programmer. And one of them is going to be a light tan color. One of them is going to be dark black. And the other one is going to be this pinkish textured thing. And the programmer is going to go, that's easy. And it is. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you get a really dark sandstone? Yeah. Or a pinkish textured sandstone, which is the fountain formation, my favorite. (laughs) Right. Or what happens when you get weird gradation or bedding or bed structures? One, all like, let's say a geologist is looking at a sandstone. You are trying to identify what that is, but in the process of doing that, you're going to say, hmm, okay, look at that cross bedding, or look at that grading, or, you know, look at how it's cemented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all of those things are things that are not going to be picked up by an app and maybe that's not what you're looking for maybe you just want to know it was a sandstone but those are things that tell you an essential piece of that rock's history you have to have that information to do that with because some limestones have sand grains in them yeah and some sandstones are cemented with calcite and you know let me take a rock with chert nodules in it and throw it at you see what happens then yeah well, it'll hurt, but yeah. Right. <laughs> so you have to have, and I mean, and this is even, so thinking about all this effort I put into field camp this summer, and one of the things that we um, did when we made our our um, Google Earth project is that we would have numerous pictures, you know, embedded in there. And we didn't just want the Google Earth pictures, like you just click through it. Um, And so we went to a ridiculous amount of time and trouble, which was worth it, to identify softwares we could use. And we used this thing called ThingLink, okay? And we used it because you could take a panorama and put it on there, and you could embed pictures within that panorama. But not only did we do that, we hosted some of those pictures on a thing called EasyZoom. And... So you could zoom in on the picture and maintain a little bit of um, resolution 
which nothing else would let you do. Do you know how hard it is to take those pictures? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's like, and then I even had some of our easy zoom in pictures were taken with a Dynalite. So that's a little handheld, little monocular microscope, basically. And to try to get the depth of field correct, just to get like a 25x picture was so hard. And that's with this, you know, $1,000 camera. So I can't imagine trying to get that done with, I know iPhone cameras are super good, but are they that good? Well, and then, so, okay, let's say what it would, well, technology is advancing very fast, John, and you do technology, you should know that. (laughs) Okay, so let's, let's say things move forward. I think to successfully identify a rock, you would need something to test its hardness. Mm-hmm. You would need something to test its composition. Mm-hmm. You would need high optical magnification under normal and ultraviolet light. Mm-hmm. That'd be useful. And maybe with that and an acid test. Yeah. You would have a prayer of identifying it correctly. So basically, which is funny because what we did this summer was give our students videos of acid tests and pictures and made them identify and describe rocks. Yeah. I mean, that's what they had to do. But also, they're geology students, and they still had trouble. Right. And, you know, okay, so, yeah, you could carry around a little bottle of acid, and you could say yes or no or moderately or something to a question on the phone. So the phone could guide you through this 21 questions style of rock identification. Mm-hmm. That might work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, or you could I have... could see that conceivably working. But goodness, like, that's just, see, that's interesting then, because that's just training you to be the AI, because you're just learning now. <laughs> And so eventually, maybe you don't need all those 20 questions, and you can actually identify some rocks. Right, because what are you going to do? Every time it's going to say, okay, drop some acid on it. You do that, and you observe, okay, then it's going to say, well, how hard is it? What's the the texture like? And these are all the questions that you learn to ask yourself in mineralogy or sedimentary petrology Mm -hmm. or igneous and metamorphic petrology. Or intro geology lab, even. Um, Right. And I don't think we're going to get Ramans on our phones anytime soon, right? Well, and... Even if we did, we all know that fitting spectra is an art. Oh, I was, <laughs> oh my goodness. I was on a, <laughs> I was on a master's thesis this summer and it was all about spectra. And I thought, oh my goodness, this poor guy had a lot of trouble because there were these weird noise peaks, right? Because we have all these spectra for all these things not just minerals for everything right but it's like that's those are the ideals you don't get the ideals and it turned out that they had these fluorescent lights that were on in the room that would mess up his spectra like how do you figure that out right (laughs) like that's crazy so whatever these fluorescent lights were burning was interfering with his spectra and he couldn't fit it to any of these curves, so he didn't know what he was dealing with. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, they're not, they still take ridiculous amount of expertise to figure out. 
Oh, yeah. So that's not no. easy. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not saying this to poo-poo AI. Like, AI does good things. It tells me what I might enjoy on Netflix. It tells me <laughs> what I might buy next on Amazon. It does a lot of predictive things in terms of keeping files I use often locally on my computer and moving the rest to the cloud. Mm-hmm. Like, it's great for all those things. Those are all things that are low stakes and where a 80% hit rate is more than good enough. Ah, yeah, there you go. Yep. Like, I am not deeply impacted by the fact that Netflix said you might enjoy the uh, supermarket sweep episodes that we just put on from the 90s. <laughs> but totally miss suggesting price is right. That's a that's a pretty low stakes thing. Right, yes, exactly. I mean, unless you're in a, you know, price is right tournament or something. <laughs> right. Now, it might be a little bit higher stakes if you're trying to map an area and you're just going out and using this app and it's giving you all kinds of nonsense so that your map doesn't make sense and will never make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I would love to do the experiment of could you send 10, 15 trained people, moderately trained people, revise that 10 or 15 people that have a list of things to do to an outcrop. So could we pick 10 or 15 people off the street and say, here's an acid bottle, here's a street plate, here's a, you don't need to know what any of this is, here's a set of instructions, go fill uh-huh. out this worksheet. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. How consistent would that be, one, in their answers? <laughs> <laughs> and then let's give, let's give this the best possible chance to work. Let's give those worksheets that are filled out in random order to a geologist. Or a petrophysicist, even. Mm-hmm. And say, what rock is this? Yeah. I would be shocked if the hit rate's over 70%. Oh, I'd be shocked if it was over 40. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, everybody? This is this is why. So you just I blew mean, all my public safety comments out of the water, but... <laughs> well, okay, so... Let's take it a step further. Let's take a group of trained geologists and send them all to the same outcrop. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'd be shocked if that was over 80. Well, it depends. It depends. Yeah. I mean, there are some that are pretty, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, pretty obvious. <laughs> but some of them are, are not, which is shocking that it's hard to tell two rock types apart, but sometimes it is. Well, and how many times do we look at a rock and it doesn't fit in a box? correct it's not a sandstone it's a it's a sandstone it's got a lot of inclusions of this in it or or it's it's a a, it's really muddy or it's an igneous rock that got super super heated so it sort of looks like a schist but it's still got some igneous textures in it what do you call that right and we don't have the words for all of it no exactly and we I mean, this sort of goes back, I know I bring this up a lot, but it's really interesting how how that works is like, you know, in Western science, in science, we want to compartmentalize stuff, but it's like there aren't compartments. There's not this line where a rock is an igneous rock or a metamorphic rock. Sometimes that line doesn't exist. It's really blurry because there's a continuum of pressure and temperature conditions in the earth. <laughs> right. 
So it's just like clouds aren't always one type or the other. Yes. Yes. I mean, more so because the physical process there is a little more defined in terms of is it frozen or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but still, you can have clouds that are a mixture of types. Correct. At a weird height or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why METARs are so impossible to interpret. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good old METARs. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, no, I, I don't think... I don't think it will happen in my lifetime. I'll go that far. Wow. Wow. I mean... The other thing, and this is sort of a naive thing to say, maybe, but it's like, if it was easy, I mean, or if it was even possible, wouldn't it have been done? You would think. I mean, with (laughs) all of the the government agencies that depend on geology for various things. Yeah, exactly. They're like, do we have (laughs) to actually talk to those nerds or can we just write this app? Because this plant app I have is amazing. Right. <laughs> like, and it truly is. Like, it's super amazing. But, you know, most leaves are green. <laughs> yeah. And they have distinct shapes. Like, yeah. you don't ever see a leaf and you're like, that's sort of an oaky maple. <laughs> I got an oaky maple. <laughs> that's not true. Maples don't grow here. It's too hot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> My parents have an oaky maple. Um, yeah, exactly. Yes, that is exactly right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So that's, it's not enough of an answer to be like, rocks are too complex. But I guess if you throw the technology part in it, maybe that's something that people wouldn't argue with because they don't understand it, maybe. Or just like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I think, in, you know, if a programmer went in the field with a geologist, I think their first reaction would be like, you all don't have a clue what you're doing. <laughs> A hundred percent. I think, well, no, we don't. The earth is messy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, ours can't be broken down into ones and zeros. <laughs> and I will say this is like, you know, I did not expect to take as firm of a stance, really, when we first started, when you said this is what you wanted to talk about. Uh, but the more I talk about it, the more I'm convinced that it's just not going to work to a level of reliability to be vaguely useful. Oh, I 100% agree. I do like the idea about, like, the app stepping you through the scientific method, essentially. But that's something that, that does exist. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that, those, kind of, those kinds of lessons exist. That's the, first, that's the first lab in any intro geology class is that exact thing. Well, and I think back to, you know, there are petrophysical companies that sell access to neural networks where you can feed in well logs and it tries to categorize the faces. Right. Yes. And there, you know, you've got, you've got a gamma ray log, you've got a resistivity log, you've got your caliper log. You, uh, we've talked about well logs before on here. Yeah. You've got five resistivity logs. <laughs> so. And all of those together. And most of the time, the best you can do is an 80% likelihood. Mm-hmm. And like, that's yeah. the absolute best. Exactly. And that's because you've, you've, you know, given, you've quantified what these things are. 
And you're using different physical processes, which is like having different senses. Exactly, which is way, way more than a camera. I mean, you're super lucky if you have a spectral log like that. But, I mean, a gamma ray tells you a ton of information you could never get from a camera. Well, and cameras are, I mean, color's complicated because of lighting, because of intensities, because of the way the eye works, because of the way cameras work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're truly trying to do this, like, out in the field, then that's ridiculous. Right. You know, too much sun is terrible. Too much cloud is terrible. I mean, and how many times have we seen students in the field describing rocks in a section, and then they take their sunglasses off because a cloud comes over, and you see this look of horror on their face? Exactly. Because That's the sunglasses exactly made right. all of their color descriptions incorrect. Uh, yeah. I mean, color's not the best. You still got to put it in there. Yeah, that is exactly right. So... Mm-hmm. I remember it's, having a very heated argument over whether a rock was a mustard or Dijon mustard. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that wasn't with me, but yeah. <laughs> no. Um, this is, yes, it's so true. It's so true. And then if you're colorblind, it doesn't matter at all. And actually, I know a ton of geologists who are colorblind, and they're almost better for it because it's not something that they rely on so heavily right so yeah yeah it's ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous and then when someone asks me now i'm gonna say go listen to episode 258 of my podcast kurt marford and this is why this is not gonna work Uh, yeah, I don't. That's a geophysicist professor who keeps bugging me to do this, and it's just. Yeah. I mean, if you were able to feed hundreds of physical measurements, density, velocities, resistivities, gamma ray, spectral data, color, hardness, texture, acid response, if you're able to feed all of this in, you might be able to get an okay answer. Yeah. But that's where, you know, the only time that we're really using these AI are where we have so much data that no human could go through it. And the answer being correct 100% of the time doesn't matter because we have so much, we get a statistically significant signal. Right, exactly. And you'll never have those. I mean, and this is why you do it too, is because interpreting subsurface data is a crapshoot at best, (laughs) really. Right, even, or even to a geophysicist or a petrophysicist or a geologist. So you might as well have something to help you out with it. Or think of trying to parse concepts out of every paper on a topic for the last 150 years. Right. Like, yeah. It doesn't matter if you don't get everything. But right. in geology, you know, the, the key thing there to me is AI is useful when you have so much data no human can go through it. And in geology, most of the time, right, we found three outcrops today, man. Yeah, yes, that is exactly right. Like, we never have enough data. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. <laughs> I'm a paleomagnetist. <laughs> You're I mean, your data is a random number generator anyway. But. <laughs> Darn right it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all kinds of reasons why it shouldn't exist and... Yeah, so if you want your rock ID, just take it to the museum or your local... Um, geology shop and um yeah that's what and they won't know either correct but they'll (laughs) at least say something with confidence to assuage you (laughs) so true well i don't know i don't want to i don't want to end on a down note but 
there's nothing good to say about this. <laughs> I, I just don't think that this is uh, a feasible thing, really. And I hate to say it, it makes me feel old because, you know, I, I say, well, sure, anything's possible. This you is kids one of those... and your AI. <laughs> right. But this is one of those problems where I just don't think that that is going to be able to be replaced. No. And, and I mean, really, what the Rocked app or what the Flyover Country app do is the best you could get. You know, oh, it yeah. takes these ridiculously detailed maps that are produced by geologists and just puts you where you are in it and says this is your rock <laughs> so as long as you know where you got the rock from then you can figure out what kind of rock it is now those random ones those are a little bit harder but you know sometimes geologists can do a pretty good job and tell you what they are and if you got a meteorite and you don't believe the geologist or the third geologist or the fifth geologist then you're never going to believe anyone anyway so Right. And, you know, it's not to say that apps shouldn't exist that, like we talked about, help the scientist in the field. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but I don't think you're going to be able to replace them. Mm-hmm. So you just got to get a geology degree. Exactly. <laughs> well, with that, I think it's probably time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Speaking of, <laughs> I don't know, speaking of feeling old. <laughs> yeah. How old do you feel in dog years? <laughs> Turns out I don't know because it's not an exact uh, science. Um, <laughs> so I found this paper and it is the Quantitative Translation of Dog to Human Aging by Conserved Remodeling of the DNA Methylome. And this is by Wang and 19 other people. <laughs> There are literally ellipses in the author's list <laughs> on the first page. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah. So, and the seventh author was this, this the lead contact. Where's that even? Okay. No, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I thought this was interesting because everyone always we've got dogs. We talk about dogs all the time, and we're like, oh, seven human years equals a dog year. And these scientists set out to actually see if that is true or not. And basically, the graphics of this paper make it. <laughs> they do, because they're almost um, like sketch notes or infographics. Yes. Yes, they are. And we've had, we've talked about that a lot. And they, in this also, which I thought you would appreciate, has a graphical abstract. Yes, it does. And mm-hmm. I do appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the little doggy that looks like it was made in MS Paint. <laughs> As all graphical abstracts are. I know. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Um, so basically, how, many, how much Googling did you do when you read this? Or did you just leave that to me? I left that part to you. I focused <laughs> real hard on the two graphs demonstrating the difference between linear and nonlinear. On the stats. Human okay, to great. dog correlation. <laughs> That's exactly what I figured you would do. <laughs> um, if you can't tell already, I clearly thought about going into um, medicine for quite some time <laughs> in my life. <laughs> because I feel like I always choose these um, papers that do this. So essentially, there are... People have probably heard of like telomeres and all this stuff. Um, well, there are things that change in our DNA... Right. And we can look at this epigenetically. That's like the new, it's not new, 
But that's like one of those bugs words is, you know, looking at your... It's the AI of biology right now. Yes, yes. Thank you. That is exactly what it is. (laughs) Um, And so you want to look at epigenetics and be like, okay, if my DNA did this thing that it was supposed to do for me when I was in the range of six to nine years old, does that affect what my DNA does for me when I'm, you know, 70 to 75 years old? And can you basically garner any information from that? And so what this does is it's looking at this <laughs> oligo capture sequencing, <laughs> okay, to characterize methylomes of people and dogs, and essentially saying, like, what are these building blocks that are happening within our DNA at certain times? And we're going to compare that between humans, and we're going to compare that between dogs, and it turns out they then compare it to mice, too. And with this, you get this, like, epigenetic aging curve. And what comes out of it is the translation, basically, of dog to human years and then this weird mice thing. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. So that's what they're trying to do. So instead of just saying, like, oh, yeah, roughly seven years, we're trying to use DNA sequencing to figure out exactly where these milestones with our cytosine, guanine coming together if these milestones match up right and you know because really the aging process is as your body is copying dna through this transcription process there are errors just like sending data across the internet you have Mm -hmm. drop packets and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and our body's pretty resilient uh to deal with those we've got a lot of mechanisms but eventually you get these mutations and transcription errors that propagate some of them have little to no effect. Some of them have a pretty big effect. Uh, and despite all of the ways that our body has tried to implement the equivalent of a checksum, hmm. eventually our DNA degrades enough that we, we age and eventually something critical breaks and we die. Oh, Got to find a way to lengthen my telomeres. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. It's like bad PMAG data and slightly less bad PMAG data. You don't want to propagate your errors. <laughs> right, because after some point, the error becomes the signal. Uh, right, yeah, exactly. And those are the only two types of PMAG data. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so th- the thing I loved in this is <laughs> they they could have just said, well, dog years, are they human years times seven? Right. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay. Other way around. Our dog years, yeah. Yes. So if the dog's been alive for 10 years, is that equivalent to 70 years for a human? Yes, correct. That's what we're looking at. (laughs) So in this graphic, they show pictures of different... They studied about 140 Labrador retrievers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So they talk about the difference in studying different dog breeds because there's so many breeds of dogs and... Dogs have been domesticated by us, and there's lots of different phenotypical differences um, between these. And I think this, it seems like this is the a further work. But then they chose labs because labs are just great, right? Right. And so they show a picture of a puppy, <laughs> and then a young dog, and then a middle-aged dog, and then a very old dog. Aww. And <laughs> somewhat to my amusement and a little bit dismay. Uh-huh. They then uh, compare it to pictures of Tom Hanks. <laughs> I love this so much. From when he was about 9, 31, <laughs> 51, 
and about 63. Oh, which is, he looks so old in that picture. The, the um, resemblance between him and the old dog is striking. They're both totally white, white haired, which is great. So they keep this theme going too, which just makes this paper fantastic. But you can tell just by looking at this graphic that it's not right. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the difference between Tom Hanks at 10 and 30 is mm-hmm. about the same look difference as the dog between, you know, year zero and one. Right. And that's not even close to the time seven difference. Um, but then it ends up right at the end. Correct. So something and... weird's going on in the middle. Uh-huh. Yeah. And statistics and... DNA, whatever, methylomes bear this out, right? They do. And like everything, we find out it's a nonlinear relationship. How about that? <laughs> and yet all these R values are still... <laughs> I mean, um, the R value on this data for using seven is probably not terrible. Exactly. And it does sort of... It, yeah. It's roughly okay, but this is, it's pretty interesting. Um, I thought that, well, I actually, I just think it's really neat the way that they did their statistics too, because it's hard to, let's hear what you have to say about their statistical presentation. (laughs) You know, for the type of moderately advanced to relatively advanced statistics that they've used in this paper, Mm -hmm. this is a pretty clear presentation. Yes. The... Color schemes used in a lot of these figures are appropriately chosen to be divergent linear color maps. Yes. Mm-hmm. The scatter plots with fits through them are done with the appropriate values of opacity on the scatter points to make sense. Amazing. Like, overall, I think this was a very, very well put together set of figures. I did not try to print it in black and white and see how they looked in black and white. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm starting to become less concerned about that myself. Okay. I I used to preach heavily. I don't care how good your figure looks in color. Somebody's going to print it on a black and white printer, and it has to still be readable. Oh, okay. So the ubiquitousness of color printers has gotten to you? People aren't printing stuff. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I, I remember making a very big deal out of on my plots. The color of the markers on a scatter plot was different, but also the shape. Right. So mm-hmm. that you could print it yep. in black and white and just look at the shape, or you could look at it in the fancy journal. Or, you know, back in back in the day when color cost a fortune mm-hmm. uh, to, <laughs> to put in the journal, it would just be on the fancy online version. Right, yeah. Uh, and the editors would yell at you if your figure looks bad in black and white. Mm-hmm. So, but now I don't think people print it as much. They're looking at it on a computer screen or a tablet. Or if they do print it, I mean, I have a black and white printer, but it's sitting right above a color printer that I use for color things. Yeah. So that's funny because I was shocked this summer at how much of the info that I had given students that they printed out. Really? Mm-hmm. And I had one, and I tried to be very cognizant of the fact that not everybody has a printer. And so a lot of my 
field camp director colleagues would send packets of stuff for the students, but I made everything. I said, you can do anything you want digitally. I'm delivering everything digitally. You can turn in stuff digitally. You don't have to print off one scrap or do anything, but three quarters of the students printed off a significant amount of the information. Fascinating. Now, I, mean, I, I thought it was too. And even one student at the end, when I had my really long quiz of like, what can I do better? What would you, what would you tell next year's class? Were they to take this online? And one or two of them of 10 said, buy a printer. <laughs> I mean, I will say I do print stuff when I need to write on it. Like if I'm trying mm-hmm. to make links between several things, I will print and then I'll scribble all over it. And then most of the time when I'm done, I scan it and shred it. Right. Mm-hmm. Nope. These students were printing random stuff. Wow. Yeah. It was very interesting. But yes, I agree. And I've tried not to. I try to not print papers at all anymore just for ego purposes, you know. Right. <coughs> so, so looking at this, you know, we're... We're relatively sure that the relationship is nonlinear. Like you said, they do some pretty advanced statistics here. And I see how you could look at these data and say, yeah, it's probably linear based on error bars. But we can do some more advanced statistical techniques now and reduce those error bars and say, well, this is probably nonlinear. And it comes out looking something maybe sort of like a power law, which, hmm, that sounds familiar with everything we find in nature. Mm-hmm. Sure does. So, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to be bought into this. And this nonlinear relationship that they come up with says, like, okay, let's say zero years is zero years. I think we can agree on that. Mm-hmm. When you're yes. born, you're born. Correct. <laughs> uh, then you go to one dog year. And suddenly, you're at 30 human years. Which is crazy and disturbing. (laughs) And then at four dog years, you're a little over 50. Mm -hmm. But then at nine, you're just a little over 60. So the dog ages very rapidly in the beginning, and then that curve rolls over and becomes very slow changing. Mm -hmm. But think about it. You have a puppy, you know, the... the hardest time of having a puppy is that first six or eight months. Exactly. And they say eight weeks in for dogs is about nine months in humans. So, yeah. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is probably somewhat evolutionarily driven in that as a dog in the wild, if you did not become a relatively mature, aware, and able to fend for yourself adult quickly, you were not going to survive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, humans, we, you know, coddle each other. <laughs> I, I didn't, I'm just thinking like, oh, gosh, that's 30. Okay, so my college students that I teach are like mm-hmm, eight-month-old puppies. Yep. Yeah. Seems, seems legit. <laughs> right. And my 11-year-old, almost 12-year-old dog is, you know, about like my mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also legit. <All> right. <laughs> Grumpy and gray. Oh, God, I hope she doesn't listen to And we just lost another listener. (laughs) Oh, man. I guess I'll find out when uh, she calls on Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat. And then they decide to go even further because, I mean, this has all kinds of implications, right? Because if you're assuming that your six-year-old dog was, you know, times seven, right? Like, that's a lot different in terms of how you treat dogs for everything. Um, right. That was one of the reasons they picked dogs, which I thought was interesting, too, because it said they basically have the same level of health care as humans do. Yeah, that's... <laughs> we won't go into that, that discussion. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> but, you know, you think about uh, your dog that begins to be, let's say, six years old, being considered for geriatric treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're like, oh, it's 42-year-old and people, but that's not, yeah. So it's interesting. And then they take this one step further, and they decide to do mice, too. <laughs> and there are no adorable graphics with mice, just I, a little well, bit of text. <laughs> there's one in figure four. There's a cute little um, mice people dog color chart, and the little mouse is a little Microsoft Paint graphic, but that's it. <laughs> And the, the person is definitely an emoji off your keyboard. A hundred percent. What's it called? What, what's the ISO, whatever, that makes the emoji things? No? Never mind. Oh, um, like the Unicode people? Unicode. Oh, yeah, there we it. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, these are Unicode uh, characters. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> Except but again, <laughs> perceptually uniform color maps everywhere. Mm -hmm. Very well presented data. I dare say that I think most of these graphics were made with Python. Uh, yeah, he had some, it said matplotlib on a couple of them too. So I would think that that was a good, um, I yeah, thought you'd be they, excited when you saw that. Yeah, they look like the right, uh, right tick styling and right, right fonts and just the right styling to be matplotlib. Mm -hmm. Though uh, figure four especially, there is some heavy illustrator work that happened after that. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> There's some. That's a crazy figure, anyway. <laughs> like trying to link this stuff. Right. Yeah. So, it it just it's a super complex. It's it's a super complex process, like their actual science. But I feel like these figures, which I'm usually not the figure person, were very good. Well, and this is a paper that. I appreciate it because you can read it at different levels. Yes, exactly. Because it's 25 pages, but the main meat of the article is, you know, just the six pages or five pages is all. And you don't have to know anything about DNA. No. To get the gist of the paper. If you know some about DNA, you could get a little more. If you're an expert in the topic, you could get a little more. It's a very well-structured and thought-out paper. And plus, they use this Tom Hanks versus a lab graph. And that's just amazing. Right. <laughs> well, if uh, if you've got your DNA data or have computed the age of your canine friend and would like to send that in to us, photos appreciated. Shannon, <laughs> how can they do that? Send us your puppies. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we're at don't panic geo. Um, 
We finally got John into the Slack chat room. Yeah. Of course, he just punted to me, but that's okay. <laughs> it was a question about your stuff. It sure was. <laughs> um, so come join us in there. Maybe we'll get some lively action going. Uh, we're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.